1 Kings, chapter 11, 1 to 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burnt incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep his Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Uh, when my son Jacob was uh, in preschool, he kind of had a love-hate relationship with balloons. I mean, he loved balloons because they're great fun to play with, to bounce them up into the air and chase them around. But when they burst, well, it really terrified him. There was lots of tears. Uh, there was one day when I took him to preschool and as we arrived there, I realised that it was actually balloon day at preschool. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. So I followed him into the preschool and it was all good to start with. He had his balloon and everything was, was great until the balloon burst. So Jake ran out into the yard outside the preschool and, and was in the corner and wasn't coming back into a room full of potentially bursting balloons. Uh, and the preschool teacher thought that Jacob was upset because he didn't have a balloon anymore. So she was chasing him around the yard trying to give him another balloon. Uh, not Jake's best day at, pre at preschool. There are things in this life that give us great happiness and satisfaction. 
but we also know the pain of when those things blow up. They might be simple things in our lives, simple things like friendships and relationships. Uh, It could be our family, it could be our working life. Uh, A few weeks ago we started looking at one kings and we saw the rule of King Solomon and uh, kingship in Israel is one of those things that's a bit like a balloon. It can be a source of great happiness and a source of great hope but this morning we are going to see the the bubble, the balloon burst big time. We see the painful side of King Solomon's rule. What happens when it all goes wrong? We see the suffering that he inflicted on Israel, not so much knowingly or willingly, I suppose, but simply by letting his own position as king go to his head. Rather than living as a faithful, humble leader of God's people, which was how he started, he ends up doing what plenty of world leaders do. They shape leadership around them, what will suit them and what will please them. If you can remember back to a few weeks ago, we saw Solomon's reign got off to a brilliant start. He was the king who brought unity and peace to this nation for probably the first time, even more so than when David, his father, was king. And God asked him, anything you want, ask for it and it's yours. And in an incredible act of humility... He asked God for wisdom to be able to lead the people well. I mean, it was a pretty staggering thing to ask for. I wonder what these leaders would have asked for if God had made that offer to them. Anything you want, what will you have? I doubt there'd be much humility among any of them. Solomon was the one also who built the temple in Jerusalem, something that not even his father, the great King David, had been permitted to do. Solomon was was the king who saw the fulfilment of so many of the promises that God made. And the start of his age was the golden age of of, uh, Israel. This was the best that the kingdom would ever be. It would never be better than this. So with things looking so good, where does it all go so wrong? Well, to see the answer to that, we need to go right back to the, to the book of Deuteronomy. This is what God said hundreds of years before they even moved into the land. This is what God said they needed to do when they had a king. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now when you look through King Solomon's reign, you get the impression that he might have skim-read this passage and just picked out a few things and, and didn't kind of see that he wasn't supposed to do those. He seemed to have made them into a to-do list. Acquire great numbers of horses from Egypt, take many wives and accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. If you've got your Bible there, have a look. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse number 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, some of you might not remember the talent system. Uh, You might might not have grown up with that one. Uh, I did the calculation for you. One talent is 35 kilograms. So in today's money, the gold that he was getting would be worth somewhere around about 2 
billion every year. That's what's coming in. Jump down to verse 26 of chapter 10. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He had chariot cities. That's how many chariots there were. But the clincher comes right at the beginning of the passage that we just read. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. Now, he knew that he was forbidden to intermarry these, with these women from the other nations. He knew that he wasn't to take many wives. Now, let's be clear, this is not some kind of racist thing. It's the simple fact that wives from other nations will bring their gods with them. And that's exactly what happened. Because his wives worship these other gods, Solomon ends up building shrines and places for his wives to be able to worship their gods. It's pretty stunning, isn't it? The man who is renowned for wisdom ends up making some of the dumbest decisions possible. And Solomon knew the consequences of his choices. And let's be clear, Solomon's failure is not some one-off minor indiscretion. This is full-blown rejection of God, the God who had given him everything. Solomon's reign goes from the golden age to possibly the lowest point since moving into the land. Solomon's not just tolerating the worship of other gods, he's encouraging it, he's facilitating it. Jeroboam, oh, one, of the, one of the things that really surprises me in this passage is how graciously God deals with King Solomon. God speaks to Solomon and tells him that because of what he's done, the kingdom will be divided. It will split into two. And the division of the kingdom won't be something that happens in Solomon's lifetime. It'll happen at the end of his reign. It'll happen during the reign of his son Rehoboam. But it's finally happened. Far sooner than we had thought it would happen, the balloon has burst. The king who offered so much hope to Israel is now responsible for the downfall and division of the kingdom. So Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes the throne and Rehoboam demonstrates that he hasn't learned a whole lot from his father's reign. He begins to impose huge taxes on the people because apparently $2 billion a year wasn't quite enough. A man by the name of Jeroboam mounts a, a tax uh, rebellion and in the blink of an eye, the kingdom is divided. The nation of Israel will now split into two parts. Let's be clear, the division will never be healed. There won't be a time when Israel and Judah join back together. Jeroboam sets himself up as king of the northern tribes and from now on those ten tribes in the north will be called Israel and Jeroboam remains the ruler of the southern half of the kingdom, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and they will be the nation of Judah. 
Well, in the chapters that follow, both Israel and Judah just seem to go from bad to worse. And almost every king that followed, both in Israel and in Judah, lead the people further away from God. They don't seek to redress things. When we're assessing former prime ministers, we tend to assess them on things like their economic record or how they've handled inflation or their performance on the world stage. Well, the writer of One King says that there's a very simple measure for the rules for the rulers of Israel and Judah. There are two kinds. There are those that do what is right in the eyes of the Lord and there are those who do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So here's a list of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, what was, what the, the part that took the name Israel, and I've highlighted there in blue with a red box around them all of the kings who did the right thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. There weren't any of those in the northern kingdom. The entire kingdom is ruled by people who take them further and further away from God. Every single king in the north led people away from God. They just seem to get worse and worse as time goes on. And we're told about Ahab, the king, one of the kings of Israel, uh, the last king in this section that we're looking at today up to chapter 16. So in 1 Kings chapter 16, starting at verse 29, it says this, In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And then if you jump down to verse 33, it says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. This book started with such promise. Things were looking so good at the beginning and now it's headed down the toilet pretty quickly. The balloon has well and truly burst. The kingdom is divided. Israel, the northern kingdom, is just going from bad to worse. And the situation is slightly better in the southern kingdom. The ones highlighted in blue and with the red box around them were the kings that get a tick of approval but they've still only got eight out of the 20 kings who are leading them in the right direction. Now, you might wonder why it is that the Bible wants to give us the accounts of these kings. Why is it that we have, there is so much focus on the king and what kind of leadership he offered? When the king... Well, the answer is pretty simple because when the king fails... It's not just one individual who fails. When the king fails, he takes the whole nation with him. When the king sins, the sin of the people follows pretty closely behind. This comes up in uh, 1 Kings 15 just a couple of times. It says, talking about one of the kings, uh, it says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. And then down to verse 34, it says, 
Baashar did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father caused Israel to commit. And that's the story for most of the kings. They failed, but worse than that, they took the people with them. The people ended up copying what the king did. The people end up adopting the values and the attitudes that the king has. One king's is a list of disastrous kings. And it's a bit depressing that the fate of the people are so closely connected with what the king is like. I'm sure there would have been those people in Israel who were crying out for a faithful king, crying out for someone who would lead them in the way that God wanted them to go. And that's the deep hope that we see when we open to the pages of the New Testament. The people of Israel now under Roman rule, hoping and praying and longing for God to send a king. And here's what we see at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus comes as the one in the line of the great King David. In Israel's history, if the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, then the people were very quick to follow. So God has now sent his king, a good and faithful king, who would do what is right in God's eyes, who would be faithful and obedient, who would not be self-serving but would come to serve us. This is how Paul describes it in in Philippians chapter 2. Talking about Jesus, he says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Here's the king we need. Here's the king who demonstrates true humility. Here's the king who takes the role of servant in order to save us. And this is how Paul introduces that passage in Philippians. He says, in your relationships... With, uh, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's a pretty huge challenge, isn't it? To have the same mindset as Jesus. To show the same humility as Jesus. To see yourself as a servant of others. If this is your king... If Jesus is your king, if you have your trust in him, if you know that you are made right with God through Jesus, then that's the challenge. That's the mindset that you need to have, the mindset that Jesus had. We're here on this Queen's birthday weekend and the challenge is for us to carry the mindset and attitudes of Jesus, our King, into our daily lives. 